Romero stars. Triumph feuds of public enemies bring a reign of terror and baffle police. I want him dead. I want his family dead. I want his house burnt to the ground. I want to go to the middle of the night. I want to piss on his ass. Hello, and welcome to the Mobcast. In this episode, you'll hear about part two of the Castellamarise War, which revolves around Salvatore Maranzano, the Sicilian foil to Joe Masseria. I don't really have much else for the introduction, so let's get started. summarize what was talked about in part one, in case you decided to skip right to part two for some reason, Joe Masseria, the mafioso who spent his childhood years in Sicily, had all but conquered the underworld of New York City a mere 20 years after his arrival in America. As of 1922, the 36-year-old Masseria was the boss of all bosses, a position that he had commandeered rather than obtaining through any sort of consensus, as it was usually done among the other New York crime families. This position was further solidified by the advent of prohibition, which was pumping so much money into the black market economy that Masseria was able to insulate himself behind well-paid shooters, many of which would come to be notorious and famous in their own right, such as Meyer Lansky, Charlie Luciano, and Bugsy Siegel. Joe Masseria's downfall was a result of his own gluttony and lust for total control of New York that would ignite the powder keg causing the Castellamarise War. He had faced hardly any true opposition from the crime families his organization would actually end up absorbing. In fact, he would more often than not have a man on the inside of these opposing crime families. This was certainly the case when Masseria recruited Alfred Maneo, who was the underboss of Diocula, who I mentioned in part one, the sworn enemy of Masseria and his mentor, Giuseppe Morello. For his betrayal of D'Aquila, Almanea was rewarded all of D'Aquila's territory, being appointed as the new boss of what was previously called the D'Aquila crime family, an organization that would actually end up going down in history as one of the strongest mafia forces in New York City. However, this would be a few decades later, and they were more popularly known as the Gambino crime family by that time. Yet despite these alliances made by Masseria, most of which were written in blood, Joe the Boss actually found the strongest opposition to his campaign for total territorial control from a smaller Brooklyn crime family that resided primarily around the Williamsburg area. This crime family was led by Nicola Shiro. However, it might be a stretch to call Nicola Shiro much of a leader, as when he was confronted by Joe Masseria, he opted to try to pay Masseria off to the tune of $10,000, which, when adjusted for inflation, is $150,000. What happened next is difficult to say with absolute certainty, because after Nicola Shiro paid off Joe Masseria, he simply disappeared. Some said that he had gone into hiding out of fear of Masseria. Others believed that Masseria had Nicola's lifeless corpse stuffed into a barrel and left in an alley. But 
Then there's those who propose that Chiro was actually killed on the orders of his own associates back in Sicily, an order that was motivated by the cowardice he displayed when he tried to pay off Masseria. You see, the mafiosos back in Castello Marise del Golfo, where Nicola Shiro had originally immigrated from, were very much about defending the honor of their people, who were simply known as the Castello Marie, hence the name, the Castello Marise War. These Castello Marie Sicilians were not too keen on Joe Masseria, partially due to his obvious intentions to overtake their territory in Brooklyn, but also due to a centuries-old rivalry between the Sicilians and the Neapolitans, as well as rivalries between different types of Sicilians. Now, if you know a bit about Joe Masseria, you may wonder why I am referring to him as partially a Neapolitan, when he was actually from Sicily and would later on run almost solely with Sicilians. You see, when Masseria had first moved to the United States from Marsala, Sicily, he first found work with a gang of toughs from a Neapolitan community in Greenwood Village. And despite his distinct Sicilian dialect, he was able to mostly convince them that he was originally from Naples. The reason he did this was because of a prejudice that Northern Italians held against those from the Southern Italian island of Sicily. They viewed them as impoverished and simple-minded. To better understand this, you just have to look at the history. Italy had only annexed Sicily 100 years prior to this. And despite being formally known as an annexation, it was, by all accounts, an occupation. In 1860, the Italian army had actually robbed Sicily's national treasury and had prompted all of the manufacturers located in Sicily to disassemble and relocate to northern Italy, taking the jobs with them. This left the island dependent on agricultural endeavors for their economy to survive, growing olives, almonds, and grapes. However, the island of Sicily had many active volcanoes, which over the centuries had layered the ground with molten rock and made it nearly impossible for any sort of large-scale farming operations. These factors were actually the reason that there were so many Sicilians emigrating to the United States during this time. And then, even within the island of Sicily, there were disputes between the various regional clans. Masseria was originally from Marsala, so after Shiro conveniently disappeared, Masseria attempted to install his own associate, Joe Perino, to the head of the Castellamarie family. This went over very poorly, as Perino was shot dead in a restaurant within two months of this appointment on the orders of the mafiosos back in Castella Marie del Golfo. The senior mafiosos of the Castella Marie family back in Sicily took Masseria's appointment of Perino as a perceived slight. This was definitely not a leap in logic by any means though, as Masseria was very vocal about his views of the Castella Marie people, who he claimed were a group of country-born hicks incapable of the intelligence required to run a crime family. So, after the elder mafiosos of Castello Marie were successful in ordering the whacking of Perino, they then called upon their own man to step up and take the reins, a man by the name of Salvatore Maranzano. 
Maranzano's exact date of arrival in America is disputed. Some say that he had arrived as early as 1921. Others argue that the ambitiousness of Maranzano makes the idea of him laying low for so many years very unlikely. What is known for certain, though, is that by 1927, he was up and ready to seize control of the Castella Marie Mafia in America. A quick historical side note, the term mafia, as well as the term Cosa Nostra, actually comes entirely from the Sicilians. These terms didn't refer to any particular individual group, but rather referred to groups that had a common organizational structure and code of conduct. The word mafia comes from the Sicilian adjective mafiosa, which can be translated to boldness or bravado. The genesis of the Cosa Nostra moniker is ironically difficult to trace as it literally translates to our thing, and it was just that, a group of Sicilian mafiosos secret society. Because of this secrecy, they did not keep historical records of their own. In fact, they were actually known to spread deliberate lies about their past in order to cultivate a fearsome image, and because of this, the members of the Cosa Nostra would sometimes come to believe their own myths. Anyways, back to the story. Salvatore Maranzano was pretty much the polar opposite of Joe Masseria. He was very well read, which was a result of his childhood aspirations to become a priest, which required much more formal education than other occupations of the time. He was also very quiet, to the point of being menacing. He was never known to raise his voice towards anyone, or really talk towards anyone at all. He had a pretty bizarre habit of rarely looking people in the eyes when speaking to them. Instead, he seemed to look through people. There are accounts that when he spoke, it was as if he was aiming his words directly into your brain, whatever that may mean. However, while Maranzano, like Masseria, had a very commanding presence, the respect that Maranzano commanded came from his charm, rather than relying on intimidation, like Masseria. So, regardless of when Maranzano had officially entered the United States, he was on the books for a legitimate real estate business with an office in Manhattan that started in 1925, when he was 39 years old. And three years later, upon his appointment to the head of the Brooklyn Castella Marie Sicilians, he was able to quickly transform the loose, minuscule operations of the family, bad habits which had been picked up under the reign of Shiro, into a well-oiled machine. He started to tap his ties in Sicily, who began supplying him with wine that he then began to distribute throughout New York and New Jersey, as wine was a commodity that was in very short supply since the advent of Prohibition. Pretty much all of the alcohol that was being smuggled into America was hard liquor, and the only alcohol that was being produced in America was beer. So wine was a luxury, and since it was a staple of Italian culture, Maranzano began to endear himself to the various Italian communities by being able to supply it. This also earned him quite a pretty penny. But like a savvy businessman, Maranzano reinvested all of the profits that he was making from real estate and bootlegging operations. He spread his money around in order to spread his influence even further. Through this, he was able to bring together smaller gangs, 
under his rule and was even able to inspire defectors from other crime families, including those in Masseria's ranks. The purpose of Maranzano's appointment was never to gain territory. When Maranzano was given the blessing to sit at the head of the table of the Castellamarie family in the United States, there was no outwardly offensive intentions. This was not a form of positioning by the Castellamarie elder mafiosos, although they were well aware of Masseria's growing influence and were opposed to it, they just had no specific plan to stop it. Instead, they simply hoped that Maranzano would bring stability and strength to the Castellamarie crime family. They did not seek dominance over a city in America, but rather seek to carve out their own operation to sustainably generate revenue. They were very much all about their business. However, within just a year after Maranzano taking over, the tensions between him and Masseria became palpable. On top of the regional rivalry that was embedded in them, they also began a direct ongoing tit-for-tat relationship. By 1928, they were taking turns hijacking each other's shipments of alcohol, and their members were killing each other in individual scuffles. None of these fatal scuffles, though, would ever be traced back to orders given by Masseria or Maranzano themselves, because putting a contract on even the lowest members of the other's organizations would be an act of war. So, for two years, these off-the-books offenses would continue. The atmosphere that this created was that of a gangland cold war, and the tensions were further exacerbated by the fact that the members of the two factions were so fluid, be it for ideological reasons, but more likely simply a desire to align with whoever seemed more powerful that week, the members would constantly jump from one side to another. Despite the clear, consolidated power Masseria had attained, reflected by the size of his territory and the sheer numbers in his ranks, Maranzano was simply seen as a better overall leader, who many thought would inevitably use his cunning ability to come out on top. Now, for a clunky historical analogy, just as the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand had ignited the European powder keg that launched World War I just 15 years earlier, the murder of Gaetano Reyna, who was more commonly known as Tommy Reyna, officially kicked off the Castellamarice War. Tommy Reyna and Joe Mastrio went way back. They had both worked for a long time as captains for the Morello organization. However, as the Morello family had fell into chaos during the 19-teens, he split off to form his own family. Thus, by 1920, he had become the boss over his own gang, and controlled operations in the Bronx and parts of East Harlem. Reyna's organization actually held a monopoly over the icebox distribution in the Bronx, and this was a time before refrigerators or freezers, so this was pretty lucrative. However, in order to secure a method of distribution for these iceboxes, Reyna had formed a begrudging alliance with Joe Masseria in the early 1920s. Because, as you may remember, it was Masseria who had absorbed the remnants of the Morello family and had become the more powerful of the two. I call it a begrudging alliance because Reyna did not like Masseria at all. He did not like him professionally, and he just did not like him as a person. 
and this went back to when they were both working under Giuseppe Morello, and Masseria had just become more insufferable and arrogant as he amassed more power. Reyna simply saw an alliance as a means to an end, in order to avoid having his icebox shipments knocked over or his incoming liquor shipments hijacked. So once Maranzano appeared on the scene and established his legitimacy, Reyna gladly swore his allegiance to him. But when Masseria learned of this betrayal, he took it very personally. It was not as if any significant source of revenue or income had suddenly been severed. In fact, Reyna's organization operated with their own autonomy and weren't actually kicking up any money to Masseria. No, this was simply a blow to Masseria's massive ego, and he reacted with the explosive anger that he was known for. He put a contract on Reyna's head and assigned his best soldier to act on said contract, Charles Luciano. However, at the time, Luciano had his own qualms with Masseria. He had some underlying resentment stemming from feeling underappreciated. He felt as though he had been doing important and vital jobs for the Masseria organization, which he was, but he wasn't being given the recognition that these high-level jobs deserved. But like a loyal soldier, Luciano acted on the contract. Well, he himself was not actually one of the shooters, because Luciano, because he had been working higher-profile jobs for Masseria, had become too recognizable. Instead, he consigned the job to a younger soldier in the Masseria organization, Vito Genovese, the same Vito Genovese who would become the namesake of the Genovese crime family, who, on a cold day in February of 1930, as Reyna was leaving his mistress's apartment, approached Reyna with an unknown associate, brandishing a double-barrel shotgun and blowing off Reyna's head, before he had even shut the door behind him. The fallout from the whacking of Reyna was immediate. Maranzano was well aware that Masseria had put out the hit as a sign of disrespect towards Maranzano. And by that point, Maranzano had become pretty goddamn tired of being disrespected so often by Masseria. And so, the back and forth between the two families had now become official, as Maranzano put out contracts on every single one of Masseria's captains. However, there was a caveat that if any of these men were to essentially surrender and come over to Maranzano's organization, then they would be spared. This was quite an effective decree. Not so much that it weakened Masseria's actual organization. In fact, only a couple of the captains took this offer, and they were immediately killed by Masseria, as Maranzano forgot to mention that he wouldn't offer anything in the way of protection, but was merely just agreeing not to kill them. Instead, the proposition weakened Masseria mentally, as it was a well-thought-out strategy by Maranzano. He knew that he could play off of Masseria's nature by making him suspicious of his own captains, which would in turn serve to isolate Masseria more and more, as well as prevent Masseria from making any large-scale attacks on Maranzano. And the strategy worked. Masseria began to shave down his inner circle, cutting out any of his men that he did not have 100% confidence in. Up until that point, Masseria had never actually taken direct aim at Maranzano himself, though this would soon change, as Masseria did not counter Maranzano's attack on his captains with a similar attack. Instead, he made the brash decision to go straight for the head by putting a contract 
on the head of Maranzano. One of the unintended consequences of the Castellamorese war being declared was that the other crime families who had relied on Maranzano's wine connections or Masseria's control of the New York port for the importation of liquor coming in from Canada had had their businesses come to almost a complete standstill. And since the conflict had begun cutting into the business of the other crime families, these other crime families tried to get the two to come to some sort of agreement so that they could all start making money again. In April of 1930, the families called a sit-down so that Maranzano and Masseria could hash things out under supervision. At the sit-down, it was decided that Masseria would be stripped of his title of boss of all bosses, a move made to satiate Maranzano. However, this alone was not enough. When the other bosses tried to broker the peace between the two, it was actually Maranzano who outright refused any sort of deal. Instead, he made it known that as long as Masseria was alive, there would be no peace. He ended the sit-down by standing up and reiterating his offer to any potential Masseria defectors that they would not be targeted if they pled their allegiance to Maranzano and then left the sit-down entirely. So it's safe to say that this attempt to broker a peace failed spectacularly as the aftermath saw Masseria making an aggressive push to strike fear into not just Maranzano's soldiers, but also into the members of the Williamsburg community that lived within Maranzano's territory. Masseria began to send his men in to start making collections of their own from the constituents of Maranzano's territory. But regardless of whether or not the shopkeepers paid, many of them still ended up having their shops torched or blown up. Masseria was enacting a reckless offensive with no clear strategy other than causing as much damage as possible. Maranzano, in his cold calculating nature, did not retaliate though. Instead, he simply beefed up security around the Brooklyn territory, which ended up meaning less men to protect Maranzano himself. This was a part of another brilliant strategy as it demonstrated that Maranzano was an honorable leader, a man of the people compared to the gluttonous Masseria. The attacks by Masseria's men continued, but they became much less frequent because of the extra security. For the next year, this situation continued, but the attacks on Maranzano's territory became less and less frequent, as the perpetrators were getting gunned down, which in turn served to discourage others from trying to carry out these same acts. This entire time, it seemed as though Maranzano was on the defensive, since he rarely made any strikes on Masseria's territory. But what Maranzano was actually doing was sending his men in quietly, with precision. He would send his youngest soldiers deep into Masseria's territory, but instead of being there to torch a store to the ground, Maranzano would instruct his men to quietly take out Masseria's captains in their own homes which severely weakened Masseria's organization as he continued to lose his top men and those who he had not lost yet were really beginning to take a hard look at whether or not it was worth it to stay with Masseria. And this culminated in what can be considered the ultimate betrayal of Joe Masseria by his men because, and I will discuss this in part three in much more depth, but at some point, the obvious waning of Masseria's dominance in conjunction with the overall feeling of disrespect 
that he was receiving from Masseria, a 34-year-old Charles Luciano became compromised. It is not clear on whether he approached Maranzano or if Maranzano had approached him, but at some point, a deal had been struck. So, on April 15th, of 1931, Luciano met Masseria for lunch at a restaurant on Coney Island, just as he had hundreds of times before. The restaurant was empty besides the two of them, as they wanted to discuss business and play some cards. After they had finished eating, Luciano excused himself to the bathroom. Now, the game of cards that they had been playing must have been pretty exciting, because Masseria failed to notice that the four bodyguards whom he had showed up with in his bulletproof armored car were no longer standing guard in front of the restaurant. And since these bodyguards helped justify why Masseria himself never carried a gun, a habit that he had picked up for no discernible reason other than perhaps being lazy. Thus, when the three gunmen burst into the restaurant, Masseria was a big, fat, sitting duck. And when Vito Genovese, Joe Adonis, and Albert Anastasia, aka the Executioner, emptied their clips, they got off more than 20 shots towards Masseria, before strolling back out of the restaurant casually and getting into the same car they had arrived in. And so, that was that. Masseria lay dead in the restaurant, with four 32 caliber bullets in his back, as well as a mysterious fifth shot that had gone through the back of his head by a 38 caliber bullet, which indicated a different gun than the revolvers recovered by the police outside the restaurant. The 38 caliber was, coincidentally, the type of gun that Luciano was known to keep holstered around his ankle at all times, although whether or not he put the final bullet in Masseria is not known for certain. What is known for certain is that stories of Masseria's death flooded New York City. Some of these stories had grand exaggerations, such as Masseria dying with the Ace of Spades, aka the death card, clutched in his hand. And although it may not make for as good of a story, the effect was just the same. Joe the Boss was dead, and now began the reign of Salvatore Maranzano. And although this may seem like the end of the Castellamarice War, the aftermath of Masseria's death is what ended up making the conflict so important, as there is still a third party involved in the war, a party that had pretty much remained in the shadows, and who I will be talking about in part three.